And, you know, I find it interesting that, for instance, if someone says that like a munch or a polyamorous gathering is for women only or for maybe for gay men only or for lesbians only, that's never questioned. But when you separate, uh, when you say that this is for people of color, this is for black people only, that is consistently questioned. And the question, and, and so you have to ask yourself, why do we question certain um, exclusive spaces, but take issue with other exclusive spaces? Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about Black polyamorous history with the organizers of the Black Poly Pride Conference, Cherie Calico-Roman and Shanae Jackson-Kendall. Both Cherie and Shanae started their journeys as admins of online community groups and then went on to become the co-founders of the Polycultural Diversity Alliance, where they discovered a lack of Black safe spaces and content at conferences and World Pride events and decided to fix that problem. (laughs) So they are the co-founders of Black Poly Pride, which was born from their mutual dedication to polyamorous education, outreach, activism, and wanting to normalize polyamory as a relationship orientation. They're planning the second annual Black Poly Pride this year, which we'll be talking about more later on, as well as how you can get tickets and what to expect from that. So Shanae and Cherie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, so I want to start out by talking about what's led the two of you here today. And so, as we mentioned, both of you started out as community admins for online communities, specifically the Young Black and Poly group. Um, And I think that in this day and age, we've seen online communities really become the bedrock for so many real life movements and for marginalized groups. Um, At the same time, I think we've also seen online communities really become the source of a lot of stress and drama, especially for people in your positions, the people who are admitting or managing these groups. So I'm curious to know what first led you into these communities and what's been inspiring and motivating you also in moving into positions of leadership and admin as well. Well, um, for me, I know that You're right. Like, this is where we really connect with people who are ethically non-monogamous. Like, the internet has really been a safe space for us to do that. And so it's kind of like you find your tribe online. And then for me, the next step was to actually meet these people in, like, real life, right? To, like, interact with them and make them a part of my life. Mm. And I think that I found that that cuts down on a lot of the drama online, right? Because when you know people in real life and you can hear things in their voice, you know, hey, they're joking or you everything that can be misconstrued, like comes off way better when you have a real life person to match up these words on a page to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like that we are generally as humans much better at interacting in person than we are online. <laughs> you know, we're just kind of more <laughs> yeah. more civil to each other as well. And it, I do think that's part of it is that it can help to 
bridge that gap because you're like, oh, yeah, I know this is a human and I can imagine how they might be saying this as opposed to just assuming. Not the wall of the Internet (laughs) in between all of us. So, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Sri? For me, I really believe that it's always worth it. Um, the drama and the hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into this is so important because every single time um, I I typically handle um, new member entrance into our groups, and so I read the reasons why people are joining and. The primary reason people are joining is because they believe there's no community where they live. Mm. And so if there's no community where you live and the only people you can find to relate to you who understand your existence and the way that you love other people is online, then we are like the pinnacle of the community, be it, you know, even in person. Like that's how people find other people in person is online. So it's all worth it to me. (laughs) Right. And I think it's important to note too, that all of those people who think that there's no community where they live, these people live in Philadelphia and Atlanta (laughs) and New York and Washington, DC, where it's full of polyamorous people. They just don't know how to find them. Mm. So that, that, that realization was really motivating for Sheree and I. Um, And as we, we kept hearing the same sentiments in Young Black and Polly. We were like, we want to, we started doing meetups. Like we had um, meetup in Atlanta, like just, we, we had, I think two meetups in Atlanta that really showed us how important it was to get people face to face. So you're both right. respectively in Atlanta and in Philadelphia, correct? That's correct. Yes. Atlanta. <laughs> were were both of you surprised when you saw the extent to which there is a community in both those places? Well, I personally, um, I started interacting with the polyamorous community here in about 2014, 2015. And it has grown by leaps and bounds in that four hmm. to five years. Um, so we were, I was surprised when I first um, started interacting with the community but it has just grown exponentially since then. Um, so I do have that benefit of having a large black polyamorous community where I live. Do you think that there was any reason for the growth? A- any specific reason for the growth over the, re- the last five years? Well, I think that people are realizing that monogamy isn't the only option. Hmm. And I think that um, some people who have been um, other forms of ethically non-monogamous who have been having open relationships or who have been swingers are looking at, at polyamory as a viable option um, to to kind of continue and look at different ways of relating with people. Where I live, it's so interesting because um, polygyny is very big. We have a large Islamic community here. And so when I saw plural relating, I saw it in plural marriages And so I always say that my polyamorous home is Atlanta because it took me finding community online and like hopping on a plane and meeting the people there in Atlanta who were flying from all over, some of them being from my own city (laughs) to like, be like, oh, this is, this is a viable community. Like there have to be other people here. It's just that we're all looking in other places 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I'm curious about why that is. That's definitely something I've also experienced <laughs> with um, like clients of mine, especially people who are like really new to non-monogamy or really new to polyamory who, yeah, kind of have that same fear of like, oh, how am I going to find anybody? I don't know how to find anybody to date or be friends with or whatever. And again, these are also people who are in San Francisco and Portland and all these places on the West Coast where I'm like, I feel like you have to be trying hard to not date someone who's non-monogamous in some of these cities. At least that's what it feels like sometimes. But yeah, it is kind of that funny thing where it's like if people aren't presented with the avenues for finding their community that we end up looking in all these different places for it. I think it's because there's not, there isn't always a flyer on the door that says exactly. there are polyamorous here, yeah. <laughs> right? Neon sign. Um, so if, if we're not wearing our t-shirts and, and like our gear and things that say I'm poly, then we're walking right by one another. Um, so that's why I think it's like super important. And it's still not always safe to present as polyamorous. We don't know who the safe people are. And I think that that's why a lot of relationships do start out on social media because you build a report with someone and then you are like, okay, I know that these are my people. And then Atlanta was just really great from the very beginning at creating environments for people to socialize, for poly people to socialize. Hmm. And I think it's also important to think about the fact that, like, like she said, like, there's no universal symbol. Like, I, I've taken to wearing, like, my polyamory sign on my on my hand, right? But everybody doesn't have that. And I think back to, um, like, being LGBTQIA in the 70s and 60s and how they had, like, like, the different color bandanas and, like, how though there were subtle ways in their culture that they indicated that they were part of a subgroup. And largely, polyamory just doesn't have that. So unless somebody's polyamory tattoo or jewelry is visible, you just don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't quite have the um, the the pineapple in the shopping cart. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to mention the pineapple. <laughs> if that was ever a real thing. I'm always, I'm always skeptical that that was ever a real thing. But I guess it's just an urban legend. <laughs> right. That's, I think that's why, like, at our conferences and at our events, our swag is never just swag. It's always, you know it always makes a statement because the fact that you're going to wear this and you intend to be out in some way and public about your love style and orientation, it takes a bit of bravery to do that. Yeah, 100%. So several years ago, I believe uh, it was actually when we first interviewed Ruby Bowie Johnson, maybe. No, it was, it was on our episode about uh, compersion. Uh, it was with oh, the director oh, yes, and of writer course. of Compersion. Of Compersion, yeah. Oh, I love that show. It's so great. Um, but we were made aware from um, them just of the Black and Poly Facebook group, which is such an impressively large Facebook group. So we have this private Facebook group for our patrons that's getting close to a 1,000 members. And with our admins, it does take a lot of work to manage that. But you both are involved in managing Black and Poly, which has 15,000 people, which is just <laughs> incredible. So what is that experience like? What have you learned from it? We'd love to talk about that a little bit with you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a constant experience. I bet. Um, 
in a group of 15,000 where it's like accepting posts just kind of becomes like a part of your day. Hmm. So it it's like I accept posts, like I respond to text messages. Like it's just like a really like fluid part of my day. Um, and then some days it becomes, you know, half of what I do that day, depending on, like we said, sometimes the drama starts and things and situations require heavy moderation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that what Black and Polly has been really good about is realizing what their purpose is. It's very much a group where you can come into the space and learn. Um, it's a space for education. There are numerous articles that Black and Polly has and, you know, provides access to an information. It's a constant and consistent stream of polyamorous education for the Black community. Um, and so that's something that I've had to keep in mind as an admin because Shanae and I both, we didn't come on into Black and Polly believing that we would be admins of the larger group. We came on believing that we would just simply be admins and um, found, founding members of Young Black and Poly. And Ron saw that we did such a great job organizing and building up that space that he wanted us to come on board and admin the larger group as well. And that's something that I've had to keep in mind as a young Black polyamorous person is that there are so many different variations of polyamory and ways to do it. And so you kind of have to use that mindset when you're accepting posts and like moderating threads, like what's kind of against, what what crosses the line, you know, what's an acceptable post? What are we presenting to 15,000 people? Right. And, and in that same vein, we have to, I very much have to remember to put my admin hat on. Um, and realize that Black and Poly was created as a place for people who are new to polyamory to come in and to be able to be compassionate and empathetic um, to people who just are very new to the lifestyle in comparison with, you know, myself, who I've been ethically non-monogamous for uh, over a decade. So it's kind of like... Yeah, that's you a very to- interesting distinction. Someone who's new versus someone who's uh, very veteran at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I have to put on that hat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And, and it, it's for everyone, I think, because even for me, I've never identified as monogamous. I oh, wow. realized that I was polyamorous when I was 12. So coming into a space with that perspective is so different than, let's say, a couple's coming in and they're opening up after being married for 17 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because I think this is so, so universally applicable. So this is something that we experience in our Facebook group. You'll see it in like the Reddit polyamory thread. You see it in the Black and Poly group. Like I see this happen where someone will ask something or say something as usually as a newer person, although sometimes not even, but they say something that people go, oh, no. Either because they said something that was uh, something that was maybe offensive that they didn't know that it was, or they said something where everyone's like, no, 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 that type of relationship's bad. (laughs) You know, like that's unicorn Mm. hunting or that's whatever. And people all kind of like pile on and jump all over that person. And it's, it's hard. I find as someone helping to run a group, how to like encourage that kind of, um, 
like, how do we have that compassion? Like, how do we teach ourselves and also encourage others to be compassionate and educate rather than just being like, no, you're wrong. (laughs) I think one of the things that we, one of the things that we always suggest is for people to educate themselves and read the room when they come into a space but this is only because it's not just the responsibility of the person coming in to do this. It's also the responsibility of us as a community to create the safe space for people to be open and honest. However, I do believe that there are certain behaviors and activities that can activate or trigger a community. Um, for example, I think the biggest prime example of that would be like unicorn hunting. It's mm. something that we universally see people jumping on others whenever they come into a space and they're like, we're looking for our third, we're looking for a third partner. And I think it's because if you've been in the community for quite some time, you've seen instances where that has gone terribly wrong. And it has affected the lives of people you know who are close to you or someone who may not be close to you, but you've just bared witness to someone who maybe they moved across country to be with a couple and they were like left destitute after that. Like these are very real things that are happening in our community. Um, And so I think the people who we may call like poly veterans in these communal spaces, they come in and they're automatically triggered when they see things like that. And so I think it's realizing that this is a very real part of the community and figuring out how to bridge that gap. Yeah. Uh, Something else I wanted to ask about with the black and poly Facebook group. So something that is very clear about the group. Like right when you look it up, it's very clear that this group is open to everybody and that this is not a group that's just for black people. And over the years that I've been in the group, I've seen several discussions come up about that choice about like, is that really what people want in this group? Should non-black people or specifically should white people be allowed in this group? What is it? And it's, I know that it's something that uh, Ron Young who created the group has been very, clear about like, no, that's not the purpose of this group. Maybe there are other groups that could be that, but that's not what this group is. And I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about the distinction between like a safe space that's like for black people only versus a space that's black centered, but is open to everybody. Okay. I I would love to talk about that. Um, So I am of the opinion just in general that the creator of a space determines the air in the space, right? And so Ron, is, as the creator of Black and Poly, has decided that this is a Black-centered space. And I know for me as an admin, that's something that I um, hold people accountable for, right? That this is a Black-centered space. But Black and Poly is also for, it is for everyone, right? And I think that there are some things that, you can choose to be in a community as an observer. You can choose to be in a community and be a supportive. You can choose to be an advocate in a community and not, I think for me, the real test of a person is if they can be a minority in a situation. Or do you, as a minority, feel the need to constantly bring the spotlight to you, right? Mm -hmm. Because Black people throughout history have always had to be the minority in spaces. We have mm-hmm. we black people have had to desegregate colleges, universities, 
Like I went to a pri- like even in 2009, I went to Georgia Tech and I left Georgia Tech in 2009, but it's a pri- it's a primarily white institution. There were enough there were few enough black people that we could do a march. 1400 mm-hmm. in a group of 14,000, right? So when you look at yourself and you're that small a number, um that that t- talks about why we need black spaces, like black only spaces, right? And so a black centered space is one that is open to all. And occasionally, um I think that there is a need for spaces that are only for black people, only for people of color, only for certain marginalized groups, right? There's lots of marginalized groups you'll see. And you know, I find it interesting that <clears throat> for instance, if someone says that like a munch or a polyamorous gathering is for women only or for maybe for gay men only or for lesbians only, that's never questioned. Mm-hmm. But when you separate, uh, when you say that this is for people of color, or this is for black people only, that is consistently questioned. And the question, and, and so you have to ask yourself, why do we question certain um, exclusive spaces? but take issue with other exclusive spaces. Yeah, that makes sense. Sherry, is there anything you'd add to that? I completely agree with those sentiments um, that Sinead just made. I also think that we as admins take it upon ourselves that because we are telling our community that we intend for this to be an inclusive space, but also a safe space that we monitor, moderate the threads and the posts that are going into the group because we don't want anyone to be activated or racially triggered. Um, We want to make sure that the space is protecting the people that it's primarily intended for. And I don't think that we make any apologies about that as an admin team. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that's, I think that's definitely a challenging thing in running a community or helping to manage or admin a community is, you know, you have to be the people who, who really uh, have to bring that like lack of apology to the table, Mm. essentially, in the decisions that you make in protecting the community. Because I mean, I think otherwise, it can be really easy to kind of get blown about by kind of like, what all these like 15,000 different myriad voices are saying, you know? And so it does seem to me like it really requires like that conviction to stick to those kind of guiding principles for the community, um, which is tough work sometimes for sure. Right. No, it, it requires it, it, that portion it requires, um, it requires tact, but it also requires courage. That's one, that's I think the word that comes up for me when I think about, um, both my work with Black and po- Black and Poly, and my work here with Black Poly Pride, that it takes courage to really stand up and provide for my community what it needs. Yeah, definitely. And so that's actually a good transition to start talking a little bit more about the work that the two of you do, specifically with Black Poly Pride. And first, I want to talk about um, Black History Month, which is this month, the month of February. You know, Black History Month itself has a history um, going back to the 20s, has its own certain amount of controversy. And as far as I can tell, it seems like the two of you are running 
probably the first ever public campaign to acknowledge the polyamorous side of Black history. So tell us more about the campaign, how people can participate, you know, not just this month, but the rest of the year as well. So for us, Black his our theme for Black Poly Pride 2020 is Black Polyamory, a revolutionary act. And so when Black History Month was coming around, we really saw it as an opportunity to start to collect stories and information about the history of Black polyamory, because it's something that we oftentimes don't hear enough about. Um, Oftentimes, when you go into Black polyamorous spaces, we feel as if we are maybe lagging behind the curve for polyamory a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we know that we were there (laughs) at the beginning, at the forefront of the creation of multi-relating and polyamory. We just don't necessarily have well-documented accounts of that. And so it's important for us to find those stories and also talk about what's happening now so that people 10 years and 20 years from now don't have the same issue. That they're not grabbing for straws when they're looking for representation of themselves at the forefront of polyamorous, whether it be legislation or just community and change in, changes in culture. And so I know that's why this campaign is super important to us. Yeah. And I, 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 um, in, in conversing with Sheree about the need for us to do this, um, one of the things that came up for me is that the modern use of the word polyamory, right? That happened in the 90s. Right. But as much as we all hate to admit it, the 90s was almost 30 years ago, right? Oh boy. Quite a thing to say. <laughs> that was, that was, we're looking at 33 years ago, right? So, <laughs> but we, that's important because that is a long time and it isn't a long time, but it's our responsibility because the reality is that we are polyamorous black history. This is yeah. 30 years from now. We will be what is being discussed when we talk about what 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 was polyamory like in the twenties, you know? Um, who was who was leading in the in the two in the twenty twenties? Um, how did Black polyamory this Black and Poly group that now has a hundred and thousand members, right? Right. Like we are living in the middle of polyamorous Black history, and so it's our responsibility to step up and chronicle that history. And make it known that we're here and that because we're black and polyamorous, we are polyamorous black history. Yeah. And I also think something that to that point that I've run into um, recently while we are doing this campaign is recognizing the overlap between polyamory and other movements, um, like how we align with the gay rights movement and how that legislation affects people who live polyamorously and how this is this is not new for any of our communities it's just the language and the vocabulary that we put behind it and 
it almost made me, it definitely made me take a back, a step back from this kind of elitist stance that exists in many of our communities regarding like language and what we call things. Because I see it all the time in our community about how we latch onto words. And I do believe that words and language are important, but it definitely put into the spotlight how we may ostracize some people um, just by like latching on to certain terms within our community. Um, And so it's just been really enlightening in many different ways. Yeah, or even how we'll kind of like a community will all try to like abandon a term altogether because they're like, oh, well, it got associated with something. So we're going to try to abandon it and move to this new thing. And it's, it's just like this constant, I don't know, like this constant game of kind of dodging around those. Whereas I do feel like a lot of people also come at it from this, like, no, like we're not going to let people take these things from us. Like, let's just use it and make it be what we want it to be instead of abandoning ship anytime some negative association comes about tied to polyamory (laughs) or whatever. Oh, trust me. I've had many uh, battles over the word unicorn and plenty Mm. polyamorous spaces. Um, And I I think that one of the beautiful things about polyamory is it opens you up to changing your mind. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And and I actually, you know, you mentioned about, you know, looking at how other movements have influenced polyamory today and black polyamory today, and specifically like as part of your ongoing uh, polyamorous black history month campaign, you released an Instagram post that was specifically about womanism, you know, which was the movement that formed in response to white feminism. And I'm really curious to hear more about like, what can you tell us about how the principles of womanism have influenced the polyamory movement today? So I uh, authored that post and it took a lot of digging, primarily because, again, we come into that space of like trying to trace the history of words and when did certain movements start. And at the root of womanism was this desire to fully embrace the, the freedom and autonomy uh, for Black women. Um, and the reason that they separated from feminism is they didn't really uh, fully receive the support that was necessary um, in the feminist movement. And they also experienced um, this run-in where, as a Black woman, a large portion of our identity um, comes from our relation to our family and this ideology that Black men are our brothers. And so in feminism, it was very much like burning the bras, down with men, you know, we're not interested in anything that has to do with masculine energy. And I think womanism... um, Due to our race, we found it necessary to assert ourselves, but not separate ourselves from the men within our community. That wasn't something that we were able to put on the table or, or able to do. We, we needed everyone on the same um, page when it came to what our issues were regarding race, because that was still a primary issue, even when feminism um, 
was in the mainstream and really coming to light and growing. And yeah. modern modern day black polyamory is essentially rooted in womanism, right? Because there are so many other forms of ethical non-monogamy, right? Ethical non-monogamy being that umbrella term. And then with polygamy and uh, polyandry and all other different types. But polyamory asserts that essentially what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Mm-hmm. And so it asserts that women have the same right and desire to seek the kind of relationships that they want and that are satisfying to them. So essentially it, it really, as a, a modern day polyamorist, um, womanism is really essential to our ideals. Yeah. And the, the ways in which it breaks away from the patriarchy um, that exists. And I think that within modern day polyamory, we are growing more and more into our own as women and opening ourselves up to say, I want multiple male partners. I want to, I don't want to just be in a triad, um, which is something that's new because in the media, that's typically what we're seeing. We, you know, we see the three pairs of white feet underneath the sheet, and we are so much more than that as a community. If I have five dollars for every time, (laughs) whoever took that picture must be rich at this point. Kill it, kill it with fire. (laughs) Exactly. Get rid of it. We we also do not like it. Oh man. Yeah. So that's that what you were just talking about, I think is so interesting because I remember for me, uh, guess this would have been back in like 2004 or something like that. So maybe 16 years ago, this was before I knew about polyamory before I'd kind of become aware of any of this stuff. But I remember I was in Chicago and I was listening to the Tavis Smiley show uh, on NPR and he was doing this story about I feel like this was about in Chicago, but it was about the black community and multiple women dating the same man and kind of, you know, and this was put out as this, like, this is a thing that's very normal in the black community here, or it's, or it's very common, I guess. And they were talking about why and kind of the reason that they came up with for it on this show was this idea that like, well, there's not enough like good black men to go around. So women are fine with sharing them. And looking back on it what? now, I, had, I, I know, Jesus I know, I had, I had kind of forgotten about this until just recently. <gasps> and I remember listening to this thing, you know, on the radio, on a program hosted by a black man too, like giving this story and being like, looking back and going, gosh, like the way that patriarchy seeps even into the way that we would evaluate something is right. so pervasive. Right. And I think that's why what you're doing and like, polyamory being tied to womanism is so important because it's like no maybe that's just what you happened to see when you were looking at it right the reality right the reality behind that of course right is that women that black women are dating multiple black men because that's necessary in order to have uh and to be happy and have all their needs met right so um it, it you're right patriarchy seeps in to everything because it's so pervasive in our society and in our cultures it seeps into everything and you have to be intentional 
about fighting against those patriarchal views that, like you said, even within our own community, we are constantly attacked by those bullshit patriarchal ideas. And I think something that we bump up against oftentimes in the community is this question comes up a lot whenever we talk about triads and unicorns and the one penis policy. People always ask, well, what about women who choose to only date women and who only choose to um, be in OPP situations? And I think what we find ourselves weighing, at least for me, is the ideal of egalitarianism and what that means for me. Because I, I currently don't have any male partners. But for me, on post, I don't necessarily go on threads and I'm like, yeah, so I don't date, you know, I, I, I won't date more than one man. Because for me, it's important for the women around me to have the freedom to date multiple men. Uh, so if that is my choice, I believe everyone should have that choice to define and, and decide who their sexual partners are. But we have to watch, are we judging other women for doing it? Are we putting women down for doing it? Are we constantly kind of like showing up in the media or on threads to kind of, we call it, we call it the pick me culture mm. where it's like mm. women are on the side of men and misogyny and patriarchy, but they don't necessarily know it. And, and women feed into that as well. I think we've, um, kind of definitely seen this more so like in the media with things like shows like The Handmaid's Tale, which is something I always bring up when I talk about this, about how women can move patriarchy and misogyny forward even more so than men by buying into Mm. it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's it's something where it's like sometimes I, I feel like women can be like such a vehicle of patriarchy, you know, and such a vehicle of our own oppression. I think, yeah, like you said, to an extent where many of us don't even realize it. Even those who call themselves like staunch feminists, they still often will move forward the patriarchal message, I think. Which I, I mean, if I think about it, I don't think it's necessarily something where I can point at women who do these things and say like, oh, you're bad and you're terrible and you're awful. Because it's like, if you think about it, that pick me culture, I think it's a result of the fact that like we really do incentivize people who hold up patriarchy, you know, <laughs> it's like if you happen to be the unicorn or if you happen to be like the perfect, you know, bi babe who happens to be only interested in one man and is happy to like have, you know, sex with women in front of your male partner. It's like that's highly incentivized with male attention. And so, of course, that incentive is there to kind of carry that forward. Um which is messed up, but you know it's kind of part of the bigger system at play that keeps it all, you know, keeps the well well oiled machine of patriarchy still a running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like the thing I always want to say in response to those people who are like, "Oh, well, you know, my female partner is mostly just interested in being with other women." I'm like, "So then, why do you need a policy, right? Like, why why do you have to make that rule? Because if that's true, why would you have to control her at all? Let her do her and thing, I always- and, you know." And I always ask, so what if she changed her mind? Mm-hmm. If changing, if if this, if your partner deciding to be with someone of the other sex or the same sex would make your relationship end, then it is in fact a policy, right? And why do you have to? If you if you felt you need 
to dictate someone else's behavior, then you need to really reflect on your relationship and what is it built on? Is it built on freedom and autonomy or is it built on rules and policies? Yeah. All right. So we want to get back to talking more about this uh, Black Poly Pride event coming up and some things about that. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors on this show. And this is actually something I wanted to share with our listeners because I was telling someone this recently and they had kind of they were sort of surprised by it. And that's that of the advertisers who do reach out to us about advertising on this show, we turn down more than half of them. So Mm. I do want you to just think about that for a second. Take a moment. Checking them out does actually help us. It helps us keep this show going. Um, And we hope that you get something out of it too. So we'll see you in a sec. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on AdamMail.com and Eve'sToys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our (laughs) listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. All right, so let's shift back to talking about your event, Black Poly Pride. You talked about this um, some before. It is in Washington, D.C. in June of this year, 2020. So you talked about this a bit, but what inspired you to create this event? Because it is just a ton of work, I'm assuming, (laughs) uh, to do something like this. So really, what was the driving force behind making it a reality? So it was an accident. Um, Oh. Did not expect that. (laughs) So um, we have a, a, a funny conception story about Black Poly Pride. So our intention was to as um, our intention was to host a young black and poly uh, pool party during Poly Dallas Millennium in 2019. 
Okay. Um, so we were we wanted to attend Poly Dallas Millennium, and Sheree and I we had we were on the heels of some very successful meetups that we had done in Atlanta, and we were like we we got a lot of support from the community in Dallas. They came like to Atlanta to our meetups, and we were like, well, we're gonna return the favor. We're gonna go to Dallas, throw a party, and attend the conference. We were so ready to go, and then. Because of what was going on in Ruby's personal life, she canceled Polly Dallas Millennium 2019. So then we were like, well, are we still going to throw the party? Because we were like super hyped. Like we had gotten the Dallas community ready for our party. We had started making plans. And so we were like, okay, cool. We're going to still throw the party. I'll let Sheree tell the rest <laughs> of the story. <laughs> So, um, Shanae and I are admittedly, admittedly what we would call extra. (laughs) So we said, well, if we're going to throw a pool party, we might as well do brunch on, (laughs) on one of those days. And maybe, maybe we'll have a, like a workshop (laughs) and at the same time we are planning this, Ron Young, the founder of Black and Polly, it had come to me and talked about how he was pushing forward an initiative to have Black and Polly and all of the World Pride parades. Um, historically, for me, the way that I identify with Pride parades is a little different. Um, I live in Philadelphia, and we ha- have World Pride, but we also have Black Pride parades, and. That was something that I had never experienced or saw were Black polyamorous people in the Black Pride parades. And that was born out of a a need for a safe space at World Pride, Um, because even in our efforts um, to be inclusive, sometimes we fail. Um, And so I went to Sinead and we were talking about planning this weekend already. And I said, why don't we... This initiative is happening. Black and Polly is going to be in all of these Pride parades. Why don't we have a weekend after World Pride to celebrate Black Polly memory? And, and so, then, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it went from pool party to conference in about a week. Wow, wow. <laughs> that's wow. some turnaround. Quite a shift, yeah. <laughs> and, and is there and still honestly, going to be a pool party involved? <laughs> well, we actually did have a really awesome pool party. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. And yes, the 2020 will still have a really awesome pool party. Um, Polly Poolooza is going to be a staple of Black Polly Pride. Um, so <laughs> we 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 did have our pool party, but it turned into a three day conference as well. Um, and now that we told everybody during the planning, we planned it. So we didn't start planning until March. So we planned last year from March until what, like a week after. <laughs> wow. And, um, and so this year we told everybody, we were like, we can't, we're going to just say inaugural right now. We don't know if this is ever <laughs> happening again. We're going to have to see how it goes. Um, but we committed at um, the closing kind of ceremonies for um, the inaugural Black Poly Pride. We committed to doing it again. Um, so we definitely committed to doing it again. But I think that what really happened for us last year is we realized 
how big of how much of a need we were actually fulfilling mm. for the community because it turned into this transformative space not only for people who were like new to polyamory and coming in but when the educators and people who are typically flown out to like conferences to educate about black polyamory and the black polyamorous experience are like wow I had an amazing time. I learned something new. This is completely different than any conference I've ever been to before. I think Shanae and I turned to one another and were like, wow, we we can't not do it again. <laughs> so great. Yeah. And I, we yeah, honestly now spent now you're we, committed. <laughs> right. And we we Sheree and I both were we are not in public criers, but we spent the entire conference. <laughs> We spent the entire conference being moved to tears, and we were like, "Oh God!" Oh, yes. We we had an opening. Um, the conversation with the co-founders, so Shanae and I, and um, Avita Sawyer's moderated that conversation, and we're sitting there, we're talking to her, and she asked me like a question, and the floodgates just like opened, and I'm sitting in front of a room of, <laughs> of like 60 people just like crying, but it was such a an experience that I all I want everyone to have. It's so different to go from being online, chatting with people on threads, and then seeing them in person. Because every other time I had ever seen Avita, we had been at like a party. And that's why we think Black Poly Pride is so different because it's one thing like we'll go to a party together and we'll like have fun, but we never really had chance to have these deep heart opening conversations face to face. And when we got the chance to do that, it was like my emotions were just like all over the place. <laughs> and I think everyone was so open to that after seeing the co-founders be so open with their feelings and their emotions and being vulnerable, it led to the entire weekend being a vulnerable safe space. Right. And so we, that culture of vulnerability and a, a, a familial vibe is something that we are trying to, that we're committed to and dedicated to having be a focus of Black Poly Pride. Every single Black Poly Pride from here on, we'll, no matter how large we grow, we're committed to keeping that air of vulnerability and this familial spirit so that it always feels like coming home. Wow, that that's really moving to yeah. hear about. So for this first second annual Black Poly Pride taking place in D.C., still a pool party, maybe still some crying. What <laughs> else can people expect from the second go around? Um, well, we will be bigger. Last year, we were symposium style. Um, this year, there will be um, t- at least two <laughs> um, two classrooms going on concurrently. So we're expecting some serious growth. So that's something that we're looking forward to. Um, we're going to have some new speakers, new topics. We're putting a focus on workshops and lectures that have never been given before anywhere else. So uh, we got the the new, new and the exclusive. Um, So that's something to look forward to. And I think it's just important to remember that we do put a very heavy focus 
on balancing out the emotional heavy lifting with some hardcore partying. So like like that is, it's very important to us. It's how, it's kind of a microcosm for us of how we view polyamory. Sometimes you get so caught up in the Google calendaring and the Mm. emotional processing and the boundary conversations that you forget that you're supposed to be enjoying yourself and having a good time. And so Black Poly Pride is a reminder of this is what life is supposed to be like. That's awesome. I, I love that. I like yeah. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to write that one down because I like that one for the Instagram also, which is <laughs> to balance out Go the emotional processing with hardcore partying. Words to live by if I've ever heard them, <laughs> especially That's for, I think, people who are you know polyamorous for sure. Uh, so this this event sounds really cool, and I did want to clarify: Are white people invited to this event too? What's what's that? I mean, we talked about that kind of earlier with the Black and Poly group, but how? What's that deal with this? So white people are invited. Um, last year, what was really fun is um, Tikva Wolf uh, Kimchi Cuddles actually did a comic for us um, about how inclusive Black Poly Pride is meant to be. And it is definitely meant to be a space where we centralize Blackness and our culture and our experience. But we invite everyone to come and witness and learn and to be in our space, but to not take up space is what we say. Um, because I think that those two things are very different. Um, when we want, we want to be inclusive, but we also want the space to still maintain its purpose, which is to make sure that Black voices are being heard, are being brought to the forefront, and for Black voices to talk about other things than diversifying white spaces. <laughs> And and so um, to back up my co-founder, what I always say is that Black Poly Pride is for Black people, people who love us, and for people who understand the need for a space like this. So if you understand why we have Black Poly Pride, come on, come emotionally process, come party. If you have questions, you may have more work to do before entering the space. Um, and there are loads of books and online references that you can look into. Check out Love's Not Colorblind by Kevin Patterson. That will that that is I am hereby declaring that that is um, required reading for any white Absolutely. person entering this space. Absolutely. <laughs> I think yeah. I think we called it required reading when we talked about this book on it's our show, too. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a consensus there. <laughs> yes. Um I think that the culmination of our experience with white attendees last year, we, we were laughing and joking about our pool party, our um, polypalooza. Uh, but last year we had our pool party at a historic Texas shaped pool. <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> and when we arrived, um, we had some attendees that we, we didn't know who they would be. They kind of just bought like last minute tickets. And there was a group of white people waiting for us when we arrived, <laughs> like in our space and like black Polly pride. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. <laughs> and and the, 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 the space was predominantly white. Everyone except for us 
who were was there at the pool um, was white. They, we we arrived during open hours and they would eventually close. Um, but the way that that experience went for us um, with having white people arrive, stand with us in the face of um, a moment that is very emotionally relevant to the experience of Black Poly Pride 2019 um, to arrive. Like, I mean, we're a group of 75 plus Black people getting off of a bus <laughs> in, in Texas and it's, arriving it's at this that pool. We, it's important to know that we're, we party bus to this. We party bus. We bus to this um, this pool and we arrived 75 plus of us getting off of this bus and entering into a historical pool where we were once not allowed to swim or mm. be um, and so the people who were there waiting for us who were white stood with us in that moment and they didn't they weren't afraid to be in that moment with us yeah it was it they, was the it was the most startlingly visual representation of holding space that I have ever seen because they were literally holding our space. Um, and we, we did face discrimination while we were there. We, we were, they, they were not happy to have us there, mm-hmm. but it was very important that the people who joined us, who I hope are listening to this podcast, <laughs> their presence was so important. Um, because they 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 picked up the air and the feeling and they said, well, we're not going anywhere until y'all leave. We are staying here with you. And so feeling that that was just another thing that made me and Sheree cry, honestly. I mean, add it to the pile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so the note that I'd like to end on, we the two of you mentioned this a little bit earlier on in the interview, but. You know, when uh, we were all emailing back and forth in preparation for the show today, I saw that in your email signature was that phrase, Black Polyamory, colon, a revolutionary act. And I've noticed that that's a recurring theme on the site for Black Poly Pride, um, you know, is that fact that being Black and Poly and Proud is in itself revolutionary. And I would just love to hear both of your thoughts a little bit more on that. I believe that being Black and polyamorous is definitely a sociopolitical stance. Um, and it affects the ways in which we show up in the world. And it is a revolutionary nuance that seeps into the way that we do life overall. Um, And so I am excited to grow and learn and experience um, with our conference attendees how that permeates for us as a community at large, because I, we experience it individually. And for me, um, I live every day and I stand not knowing that historically Black people did not have the choice of how to love and how to set up their families. Historically, when we were brought to this country, our families were separated and we did not have the ability to say, this is the way that I want to love. And so for me, being Black, polyamorous and proud is revolutionary because I am reclaiming that 
choice that I never, that my ancestors did not have to live my life and to love my people the way that I want to. So it's important to me to honor that choice. And honestly, my hope is that one day polyamory will be boring, that polyamory will be normal, that we no longer have to talk about it as this radical thing, mm-hmm. and that instead we it's normalized as a revolutionary, um, as a thing that a revolution that happened, and now we're we're at a place where that's in the past, and now we're we're moving on. I love that. That's that's such a cool note to end on. Uh, so Black Poly Pride coming up in June fourth uh, through the seventh in Washington D.C. It sounds super cool, and I hope that our listeners are able to go to it. Um, so can you tell us where people can go to find out more about that and get tickets and things? But then also, what if they can't go? How can they support? Okay. Well, you can find all the information that you need to register for Black Poly Pride at www.blackpolypride.com. Just click on registration and it'll take you there. Um, You can also click on the host hotel. That'll give you a link to book your rooms. Um, You can find us on social media all over the place at Black Poly Pride. Uh, we'll come right up. And if you can't come, you can go hit the registration link and hit a note to donate. We do um, take your donations in any amount, $1,000 to $10,000. We can use it and would appreciate it. Um, and you can also look us up at www.patreon.com slash Black Poly Pride and commit for as little as $3 a month to support us on an ongoing basis. Awesome. Yeah. Actually, we're planning right after we get off this call to go and pledge ourselves to Black Poly Pride oh, on Patreon. We've, we've already Absolute. done it. I'm 10 uh, steps you, ahead of you. Okay. Wow. Okay. Look at you, Dunnegar. Well here. done. Good job. <laughs> well done. So we hope you join us as proud patrons of Black Poly Pride. And then also, we're going to now go and record a little bit of bonus content with Shanae and Cherie. And for that, we asked our patrons some more questions that they had, as well as some questions that we've come up with. So if you want to learn more about the history of Black polyamory, become one of our patrons if you aren't already so that you can get that bonus episode uh, and continue to support all this awesome stuff that's going on. We would love to hear your thoughts about this. Was there anything that blew your mind? Did you also cry when Shanae and Sheree were sharing their stories? <laughs> like I feel like all of us did. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Please come share your thoughts with other listeners on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-MULTI05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.